This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenal. And I am Andreas Fabulakis. What's the what's the date today as we're recording this, Andreas? March the 15th. March the 15th. It seems a little bit late for um, the subject matter we're discussing. Well, it's never too late to discuss favorite films, even though 2015 was almost a year ago at this point. Not really, but it bloody well feels like it. Well, we're three months into 2016, and I will cop to being the reason why we did not do this episode sooner. Um, basically, we're going over our top films of 2015, but because I waited until uh, all the Oscar stuff was going on so I can catch up on specific films, uh, we didn't have time to do it because I had not seen a lot of the quote-unquote best films of the year before, even though you yourself... Uh, had made your own list that came up in December of both best films and best performances. Now, because you did all that, uh, I figured instead of just having me talk about my favorite films, we should have someone else and get some difference of opinion. And so today, we are joined by Mehek Saeed. Hello. Hello. What's up? Uh, not too much. Uh, are you ready to live in the past a little bit? I totally am because, I, to be honest, I haven't caught up on everything in the past. So, you know, let's let's go back there. It's hard, isn't it? It's so hard. Like, there's, like, like I was telling you before, there's a couple movies I haven't seen, and, like, the more that I think about it, the list grows longer and longer. And I thought I was really good this year because this is the first time I think that I've seen more than half of the Best Picture nominees, and I was, like, I'm so proud of myself. But then I kept thinking, like, there's so many films that I just missed in the process, so... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there there definitely is a lot. And, you know, I still feel that there's some I'm missing, some important ones, some foreign films, some other not quite blockbusters, but mainstream Hollywood films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I look at your list, Andreas, and, you know, I think I've still only just seen maybe about three quarters of them. Um, so, you know, they're, uh, you're a bit more of an expert than both of us, I guess, Andreas. Well, I wouldn't say that. I will say I'm basically in both of your shoes for most of the year. I usually kind of just keep an open eye on what's out, what's basically being talked about. When TIFF comes around, I'm usually really bad at seeing which films will break out of it. Like The Martian, I kind of figured room maybe, but aside from that, I was really pressed. I was like, okay, will Spotlight be big? I'm not sure. I hope so. It sounds interesting. Black Mass, will Johnny get the get nominated for that? I'm not sure. I'm usually really bad. So when we get to about October, November, that's when I start shelling out tons and tons and tons of money to see as many films as possible to make my list. So that's when it's like, oh God, okay, let's let's get everything out there because now we've seen the bulk of what's coming out. We're seeing the bulk of what's about to come out for Oscar season. Let's do this. And yeah, it's 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 a madhouse. You could ask anybody I'm close with. I'm pretty much seeing like three or four films a week from October until December. So that's that's how I finally get around to seeing everything. And January until then, I'm basically taking it easy until TIFF. <laughs> so um, 
it, it's not quite easy. So, uh, yeah, it's I, I'd rather be in your shoes sometimes. Well, you know, you can only do so much, I guess. And, you know, it's a bit of a mad rush for me as I try to literally watch every single Oscar-nominated film. And this year I fell, what was it, three short? Something like that? Two foreign I was four, films. so I was very close with you. <laughs> yeah, the two foreign films and one of the documentary shorts. Um, that said, I guess let's let's get into this because your list has already been posted. Uh, has your did your top ten change at all, or is it exactly as it was in the list, Andreas? It partially changed. Um, there will be uh, two new entries in the top ten, but they're entries that were featured throughout the list. Um, so there will be descriptions on them if you look back at the list. But, you know, as we said, three months has been quite a bit of time uh, for the actual Academy Awards. I had enough time to maybe rewatch some films and I got a different perspective. I didn't dislike any film more. So whatever of my top 10 got nudged out, which you can make a comparison if you go back and look at the article after this episode, it's not because I like it less. It's because I perhaps like some other films more. So they maybe got replaced and you could shove them into maybe the 15 to 10 category. So uh, aside from maybe two entries, no, it's pretty much the same. So it was quite a solid year. And I think you would both agree that it's probably one of the best years we've had since 2010. So I'm excited. Let's, let's go right into this. Go from 10 until six and I'll, I'll briefly mention which ones are new to my top 10, but most of them are, as I said, are basically the same. So number 10 is the independent sci-fi thriller Ex Machina. Number nine is the envisionary biopic Love and Mercy. Number eight, which is a newer entry, is Room, which I feel a lot more solidly about maybe the third time that I've seen it. Number seven is Mad Max, Fury Road. And number six, also making it into my... Uh, actually making it a bit lower in my top ten, um, would be Carol. That's a, that's a pretty interesting group. Uh, I'm still disappointed that I haven't seen Love and Mercy yet, and I know, Mac, you have the blind spot of not seeing Mad Max yet. Yes, that's my big blind spot. But it's funny because... Love and Mercy is another film that I haven't seen. And like, literally you just brought it to my attention once again, Andreas, like it was like something that I've heard pop up and like everyone was talking about Elizabeth Banks in that movie. And that totally fell off my radar until the radar until this very moment. So that's yet another movie that I haven't had a chance to see. And now I'm like, I got to go catch that one. (laughs) But yeah, the whole, the the Mad Max part is that's the, that's the hard part for me. Well, absolutely. We'll probably get into Mad Max a little bit more, especially since I think it's on Dakota's list. But Love and Mercy, just as a quick as a quick promotion, everybody should go see it. It's it's terrific. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, then, uh, Mahek, what do you have at number 10? So number 10, and I know a lot of people are going to be like, why on earth would you have firstly two movies and secondly these two movies but i chose jurassic world and star wars as a tie um basically like i'm one of those people that when i go for a movie i definitely love the sort of nostalgic feeling um that is sometimes attached to certain films and jurassic the jurassic park series and star wars series were such a huge part of my childhood those were definitely the two series along with the top gun movie that were constantly being played in my house like when I was a kid. So being able to go to the theater and kind of relive that experience and go back to these worlds 
with my parents, especially who are huge film fans themselves, it was just, it was just so much fun, I think. And that's kind of why they both tied in terms of like their actual film quality. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of big differences I would say, but that, that underlying nostalgic feeling definitely kind of drove my decision to have them there. Oh yeah. That makes perfect sense. As bad as Prometheus was, and it wasn't as bad as people said, I would say. Alien is one of my all-time favorite movies, and that's one I grew up on. So just to see something like that come back, I understand entirely where it's not like you're lying to yourself with nostalgia goggles. It's just being able to relive something or live something you never maybe dealt with before as a child. To have an Alien film in theaters, or in your case, you know, the Jurassic Park film in theaters. So... I think it's a very logical choice for your explanation alone. <laughs> That's how I like, I, I really like thought about it. I was like, okay, I need to, I need to reason this myself and then make it sound convincing for everyone else. Because I know obviously a lot of people probably think that the quality of star Wars was way better than Jurassic world. And I would probably agree with most people on that front, but I just, I loved Jurassic park. I'm one of the few people who probably really love Jurassic park too. So I could kind of handle all the terribleness that happened in Jurassic World. (laughs) The Raptors on your side. I think you're safe. (laughs) Awesome. And Dakota, what about your number 10? Uh, Number 10, uh, I have Creed. uh, And that was one where I was really not looking forward to watching it, even though I like the director and star of that. I'm not talking about Stallone. I'm talking about Michael B. Jordan and Ryan Coogler. Um and I put it off for the longest time and I finally sat down and watched it. And at first I was, you know, I really enjoyed it purely on a sort of blockbuster type level where it's a fun entertainment. And then in the days that followed, I've really been thinking lots about that movie and it really had a nice impact on me. I think Stallone gave a fantastic performance, especially with, you know, fighting against his body betraying against him and you know i love michael b jordan ever since he was on the wire and so seeing him like this it was so great and then just the filmmaking alone was pretty fantastic the early on about halfway through the movie probably when um uh creed the jordan character has his first big fight it's one simultaneous shot and it's done so spectacularly and I don't, I don't even know how they managed to do it because it looks like the punches are real. You know, the, the scene gets more frenzied and, and it just blows my mind that they were able to do something like that and have everyone in the right position. Like, uh, how long would you say that scene was, Andres? That must be at least a seven or eight minute scene. It's, it's quite remarkable. It could be one of those things that's five minutes, but feels like seven because it just doesn't cut. But I mean, good Lord, that, that alone deserved like a, a best direction nomination. I mean, incredible, incredible. And I, I'm loving this new trend of single shot takes, whether it's like a movie that's implied to, to seem like it's one long take a la Birdman or, you know, one that's just has a lot of long takes. So, I mean, look at this, for example, this isn't the Revenant or anything in Eerie to related at all, but look at, look at the different effect you can get from a long take. You felt like you were in a fight, like, the most you felt like you were in a fight for many, many, many years. So I think it worked out perfectly. And that scene alone was like, why didn't Creed get more nominations? Despite the fact that it's kind of like a a blockbuster 
kind of film, even though it's one of the better ones. Yeah, it was pretty fantastic. And I, I'm really happy with the way it went. Now, I know they're probably going to do more. And I don't know. They'll probably just run it into the ground like they did with the previous Rocky franchise, even though I didn't like the original Rocky one. Um, I, I sort of liked the way it, it really mirrored the first one. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're going to ruin this, aren't they? <sighs> they're going to ruin it. Uh, and then Creed one, but just being like that, that, you know, alternative rock band Creed. So uh, let's, before we get there, empty monotony. Um, the heck, sweep us away with your number nine. <laughs> number nine, um, I picked a film called Dope. So it's this little little film that came out during Sunda- Sundance um, in 2015. And then it had its wide release around late spring, early summer. Um, unfortunately, it didn't gain as much traction as people anticipated. And I, I don't really know why. I think, well, maybe partially because of the marketing. But um, there are a lot of big names attached to this movie just from a production standpoint. You've got Forrest Whitaker as a, a producer. Pharrell uh, executive produced the film. And I think um, his company, I Am Other, also financed it. And you've got all these like new age hip hop stars who have all these supplementary roles in it. So like ASAP Rocky's in there. Casey Veggie's in, is in there. Vin Staples. Um, Tyga is in there. Um, but those are all kind of like the little frills. I think at the core of it, it's this film about these three kids who grew up in California or growing up in California and they live in a community where crime and violence and gang life is pretty much the defining life over there. And the main character, Malcolm and his three and his two friends they're they kind of self-define themselves as the geeks of their neighborhood and they don't really fit into that mold. And Malcolm particularly, um, is looking to break out of that world and he, you know, he wants to go to Harvard and it's, um, they basically end up at this party and when the party gets busted by a a gang, um, he ends up with this giant bag of dope and him and his friends go on this like huge mission to try and return it to the original drug dealer. And it's, it's just super, like, it's funny. It's, it's a great coming of age story. It's got such a wonderful story about community and identity and it's so entrenched with hip-hop culture as well and it's got like one of the best soundtracks ever um so i just it's a nice lovely film that i wish gained more traction um than it did i think a lot of people were really focused on me and earl and the dying girl um at that point so it's it just kind of got lost uh, throughout the year but i know it's i'm it's on netflix now so people should definitely go check it out because i'd highly recommend it yeah like when i mentioned that there are a lot of films during like tiff season or as you said sundance whatever film festival is currently playing when i mentioned that and there's a lot of films i'm spotting for that's one that i heard a lot of and i didn't get a chance to see dope so i'm glad that you brought it up you know um there are a lot of films of that nature like like you said there's dope there's tangerine actually which had a bit of traction until Mm -hmm. just before the oscar season so there's a lot of great independent films or lower level films that you know the director of, of Creed did when he did Fruitvale Station and look where he is now. He's busy making Rocky films, right? So I think these are great starting points for filmmakers' careers. And I'm glad that, again, that you brought up Dope because you need to see Love and Mercy. I need to see Dope because I've heard nothing but great things about that. So thank you for that. And it does sound absolutely excellent. Yeah, it's a great movie. And you know what? Like it, It's hard, right? Because this entire film cycle 
like they overlap with one another, right? Like you start off in January with Sundance as a big thing, but we're still wrapping up with Oscar season and Golden Globe season as well. So it's hard to balance these like continuous narratives and like these journeys of all these films and then really like see and like try and see all of them because there's only a handful that really get to push through the entire year at the end of it. So um, I would definitely recommend Dope for anyone to check out. It's it's a funny movie. It's a great heartwarming story. Amazing soundtrack. Like if you guys have any interest in old school hip hop, like that's that's the place to check it out for sure. So absolutely. And if anybody knows Dakota and myself, we absolutely do. Now, Dakota, does your number nine? Speaking of overlapping, does your number nine overlap with any of our lists? Um, at number nine, I have Mustang. Um, ah, great which film. is pretty different than dope. Um, <laughs> Very different. There's no hip hop there. Not in that country. No, nope. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> the girls in that movie would have even worse a punishment than just being married off if they were caught listening to hip hop. Um, that you know that was a movie. That was another movie where uh, I was. I was I didn't really know much about it going into it, and I, I ended up really enjoying it um, by virtue of how strong the performances were and how simple the story was. Uh, these five girls who are living in does it is it Turkey or is it what does it say what country they they're from? It's Turkey, I believe. Yeah, yeah. and you know they uh, threw some sort of a. Uh, bit of a misunderstanding of young girls playing around with young boys. Uh, their uh, oppressive family decides to tighten up and start treating them as um, the women their society sees them as, even though they range from being uh, young teenagers to still young children. And one by one, the sort of forced to be grown up aspect that they that they're all put through and how they all handle it so differently uh is 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 a very intense movie but at the same time you know it sort of fills you with hope that you know some people will say no to this sort of behavior especially the youngest girl who i don't really want to say too much about but uh she definitely is the one that resists it the most and uh, it's it ends up being a very uplifting and powerful movie about female empowerment and and not being beholden to other people, especially men, in in countries like Turkey, with uh, some of the issues that they have going on. It, it's one that that really stuck out for me. Yeah, especially with the the foreign film nominations at the Academy Awards, that was definitely a stronger film that was nominated. That was talked about basically the entire year until things like embrace of the serpent and son of saul basically came out of the woodworks near towards the end of the year and embrace this case very late into the year but uh, mustang was talked about the entire year and that's when that kind of gained momentum throughout the year for good reason because it's got a very powerful message and it's got insanely powerful imagery and it's a basic story told with a lot of depths so I think it's a great one, and it's one that just missed my top ten, so I'm glad that you were able to mention it, because it is a terrific film. Yeah, I I love Mustang as well, but I'm not going to talk about it too much, because it may or may not be coming up. <laughs> so, Oh, sounds good to me. Well, it's yeah. not coming up right away, is it? What's your number eight? So number eight, and I think you had this as number eight as well, Andreas, I picked Room. Um, yeah. So a big part of why I enjoyed this movie as much as I did is because of Brie Larson. Um, I've been 
a longtime Brie Larson fan for quite a quite a long time. She was on this great show called the United States of Terra years ago, and I've been following her career ever since. And I think, you know, part of obviously her performance was incredible, but for me as a fan, it was great to see this progression lead up to a moment uh, in her career uh, where, you know, she could display her talent and the movie picked up so quickly after TIFF, right? And it's just great to see this momentum build and her finally, you know, winning the Oscar and getting pushed into the forefront of a lot of people's minds, which I don't think she was necessarily there the entire time because she's been taking these little steps over the years and playing in a lot of supporting roles and things like that. And then she had her kind of breakout moment a few years ago with Short Term 12, and then Room came out. Um, in terms of the actual movie, there's all these Canadian ties. You know, you've got Emma Donahue as the author, who's from London, Ontario, and the movie was filmed in Toronto, so it was kind of cool to have that connection. And then I just, like, I know a lot of people didn't like the sort of two tones that occurred in the movie. So, like, the first half was this kind of, like, escape story, and the second was about more about the survival part. But I, I liked that. I felt that it was a very necessary way to tell story a story of someone who has gone through such a traumatic, abusive situation. And I thought, you know, at the heart of it all was Brie and was Jacob Tremblay who played her son in the movie. And they just, they, they brought this beautiful relationship together really well and portrayed that really well. And it felt so genuine. Um, so yeah, I just, I, there's so many things about that movie that really played to what I was hoping for was what I wanted to see. And the actual experience of seeing it at TIFF as well. So I went to the second public screening and it was literally like, like people told me they were like, bring tissues, but I did not think I would hear literally the whole auditorium just sniffing the entire time and like tissues being passed to like strangers and stuff like that. So, you know, it had a lot of impact on the audience as well. And it's great that you mentioned Brie Larson's um, evolution over the years because my girlfriend's uh, was a big fan of hers when she was a musician and you saw her in kind of doing like the pop punk kind of route being like a daughter figure like a rebellious daughter figure who dresses in like that kind of 2000s punky fashion and everything but then you see her in this film and it's this big evolution of her being a mother figure uh, mm-hmm. somebody who's too young to be a mother and it's a big change it's like Whatever happened from her first acting career, her music career, and then now, I don't understand, but it's one of the biggest turnarounds in any kind of like younger performer's career because she's not just good, but she's taking over everything. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, you know, now she's right now she's filming uh, King Kong um, in Australia and Vietnam, I believe. And like, I feel like now she's just going to be everywhere. And it's so great because I think she's such a genuinely amazing talent. So I'm really excited to see where she goes from here. I think we're going to see somebody who's going to win another Academy Award. I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. And to briefly talk about the film, I've seen it three times now. I love the fact that the word room isn't just about the room that they escape from. It's not just about the the house that they live in either feeling like a room. It's the mental mindset of the room that they have to break out of. Can mm-hmm. they break out of this kind of psychosis? Can Can the sun break out into the world? It's it takes on a lot of meanings. And the more I watch it, the more I'm absolutely enamored by it. And I'm feeling really strongly about it. And who knows, I might feel even more strongly about it as the years come by. It's it's truly a terrific film. Yeah, definitely. And like I, I've only seen it once and it's stuck with me this entire time. So, yeah, I'm sure it's a, upon repeat visits. I'll definitely find more in it that will 
kind of latch on to me. So. so that was both of our number eights. Dakota, are you going to break the combo or are you in the same boat? At number eight, I have Carol. Um, this... Uh, it's kind of there's a lot that's been already said about Carol, and it, it started out having a whole lot of momentum, especially in award season, and then it just really died down. Um, I thought it was it was a nice and delicate love story, uh, and I think the sum of the parts are better than the performances. While I think both both lead performances are very strong, neither of them were the strongest of the year. They work better together than singling one apart and it suits the film but but the film's soft delicate touches as far as the way it was shot and the way the editing and it progresses it's a it just has a really great touch and tone and everything about it uh makes it a, a very perfect companion piece to something like Mad Men where uh it's a very nuanced uh exploration of the time period in a way that for the most part us as a viewer are not really used to seeing we're usually used to seeing this very idyllic 1950s where everyone is perfect and you know uh the men were men and the wives were dutiful and the children were all uh gap-toothed and grinning and all sorts of nonsense like that and, and this sort of has that veneer and polish of perfection but it but it really isn't there you know it's just surface level and underneath it all there's a whole hurricane of different emotions and feelings and things going on. And, and I think Todd Haynes really captured that well and had two very powerful women uh, there to help execute his vision. Yeah. Carol, as we've said many, many a time before, unfortunately just kind of went off the radar with all of its attention because of the Academy award season and just any award season. But it's one that should be looked into because I think this is going to be one of those films that people kind of pick up on years from now and they say, oh, okay, this was nominated. I've, it's kind of piqued my interest and it'll slow them back into popularity because it has a place with everybody because it, it's a love story. But in the end, a lot of it's about just humanism and just what it means to be human. And it's, it's powerful enough with that, never mind just the lush colors the incredible performances, the music, the the pacing of the film, which is so gradual and, and so poetic. Just everything about it is just quite alive, despite the fact that it's not loud. And I think it'll it'll be a film that, that resurfaces, despite the fact that it's kind of disappeared. Now, speaking of pacing, Mahek, what, what is your number seven pick? <laughs> so I picked, which I'm kind of surprised that I picked this, but I picked The Martian. Um, so like I was talking about before, you know, about movies that I used to watch with my parents and, you know, it'd be this kind of like experience. I felt I kind of had that same feeling with the Martian. Um, it's just a really great crowd pleaser, Matt Damon in a pretty comedic role, sciencey, but not a sciencey movie that kind of drowns you. Like I'm no offense to interstellar fans out there, but I still haven't wrapped my brain around that one. So the Martian was a good alternative uh, for me in terms of space exploration. Uh, it was just greatly paced and a lot of fun. And it's the kind of movie that, you know, when I sat down and watched it with my parents, like it was just this kind of great family moment again. Um, 
And a lot of people were really excited about it when it came out at TIFF. And I refused to see it at TIFF because it was coming out like maybe two or three weeks after. But I went opening night to see it. And it lived up to all the hype that I found that it had at the festival. And um, it was just a fun movie. I just I just really enjoyed it. Um, and every anytime I see Donald Glover anywhere, like I, I ran into him at TIFF and had like one of those fangirl moments, like I was the emoji with heart eyes kind of thing. So whenever I see him on the screen and I'm like, oh my God, he was at TIFF and he was at TIFF for that movie. And I saw him at TIFF and then I'm like, he's so good in the movie. So that's my entire reasoning for having The Martian on my list. If only you could have been Abed then and had a Troy moment. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Although yes, the, but... the moment I had was really awkward, I have to say. Like, I was like, Donald? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, can I get an, like, can I get a picture? He's like, no. <laughs> that was it, pretty much. Oh. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, all right. <laughs> I tried. Where'd you go from there? Well, well I, you have to basically pull Matt Damon. You have to leave the planet. Yeah, exactly. Well, he was, he was kind of nice about it. He was like, Oh, well, I guess it got kind of more awkward because he was like, I can sign something for you. And I was like, I don't have a pen. And then it was like, okay, have a good night. <laughs> well, yeah. um, evacuate. Dakota, what's your number seven? <laughs> uh, yeah, that uh, ooh, got awkward there. Um, <laughs> number seven, I had Brooklyn. Um Man, this seems to be a trend for me where movies I was not wanting to see, but forcing myself to. And I normally, I normally really don't care for the romance genre of films more so than anything else because I find them insulting to people's intelligence. I find that they're, you can easily figure out the ending that the wacky situations are way too contrived and it's just trying to, to forcefully pull on your your heartstrings without really any real substance where brooklyn i thought was the exact opposite you know it was it was buoyed mostly by saoirse ronan's incredible charm where it was hard not to fall in love with her but you genuinely felt this heartbreak and ache that her character went through of leaving her friends and family behind to go start a new life and then going back and realize that her heart never really left her homeland and you know, not quite a real love triangle, but enough of one to confuse her. Uh, and the, the performances by the two males, Domino Gleason and Emery Cohen, were both equally strong as well. And all the little moments of, um, of, uh, Eilish, Saoirse Ronan's character in the boarding house with all the other women were, were like a real treat to watch. They're all deliciously evil. All these uh, other young girls that were living with this older woman in her boarding house. Just all in all, it was just a very gratifying, happy movie that was not contrived in any way, shape or form. That was 100% because of Saoirse Ronan. Uh, but everything else fell into place very nicely. Now, because I talk about this film in my in my full list, which you can see there, um, as you can tell, I do like it, and I think it's a great romantic movie and a great date film. I'm going to quickly take this opportunity to ask: Have you heard that they're talking about making a Brooklyn show where they yes. basically have the boarding house as the focal point? I think that's actually been confirmed, and um, I can't remember the character's name, but the one who's kind of the the Head, math, head mistress of the house. <laughs> she's uh, she's confirmed for the television series. She was actually um, 
uh, Ron Weasley's mother on the Harry Potter series. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I definitely well, didn't make that connection in the movie? before. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, the oldest one, Domino Gleason. Um, that's a little disappointing because, like I said, you know, that movie works so well because of Saoirse Ronan's charm. I think if a lesser actress was playing it, it wouldn't be as strong, but the story was still there. So I don't know. Well, before we go too deeply into um, basically our rehashing that's happened before with Nightmare Factory Wedding, I guess in this case, it's going to be my New York and Irish wedding. Nonetheless, uh, let's cut into number six. Uh, Mehek, what did you have for number six? Okay, so Dakota has already mentioned this, but now it's my turn. Mustang is number six for me. I actually just saw it a couple of weeks ago, um, right after the Academy Awards, and it was a really lovely film. I, I too, didn't really know what to expect. I just heard so many people raving about it and um, just talking about what a nice film it was and I really loved it I thought the whole narrative about these five girls and you know having to work through these the combination of these cultural barriers and the sort of male dominance uh within the culture and within their family was like it's it's such a truthful story that is a reality for so many people um of that culture and country as well as in many places around the world it had a great sort of feminist undertone which is you know like it really played to my heart <laughs> in that sense and um again the little girl who was you know the the youngest girl uh the youngest sister in that in the family she did a phenomenal job i think she's kind of the heart and center of it and we kind of see her as like the main character through which like we experience the entire world of this family and it, she did a phenomenal job i just i, I really love that movie and came away with a kind of sense of hope um, for people um, in that situation or, you know, for females in general. So, Yep. Again, Mustang is terrific. And Mustang is a great example of why people need to watch more foreign films because they truly escape the box that a lot of North American releases might have Mm -hmm. or just English speaking films like Mustang is quite an original film. So I'm glad we were able to bring it up again because again, it's, it's terrific. But since you already mentioned Mustang earlier, Dakota, um, I'm guessing it's not your number six. No, no. Number six for me is another foreign film, though, which is A War, um, which I want to say is a Danish film. I feel terrible if it's the wrong Scandinavian Nordic <laughs> country. Um, but this was a really, a, a really fascinating one because I don't think I've seen uh, a war film quite like this. Um, we're introduced to this main character who's the captain of his unit out in Afghanistan. And, you know, his, uh, his troops morale is sort of low and they, uh, they lost a member of their team. So he decides to volunteer to go on patrols with them. Uh, even though captains normally do not go on daily patrols, they stay at the command center. And, uh they encounter during one of their patrols they they encounter a bit of a firefight and he he uses some uh he makes a split second decision in order to save his uh entire troops lives to get them to safety that may or may not be illegal under uh Danish war measures whatever the the law is that that uh 
covers military actions. And so the second half of this film, you know, we, we see the lead up. We see what a, a good man this person is and what a good commander he is. And then one split second, sort of everything goes upside down. And then the aftermath is a trial, uh, basically trying to figure out, is this legal gray area? Is this man guilty having to go to jail for, I think, five, ten years, something like that, and having to leave his family who we get introduced throughout the film? Or was he in the right in order to save his troops' lives? And I think they handle it very delicately in a very interesting way that, like, if we were to see something like this back home about – you know, uh, Canadian soldiers in Afghanistan or somewhere else, or even American soldiers, you look at it and you'd be like, why can't they follow the law? What's wrong with these, you know, these soldiers overstepping their boundary? And we want to call them guilty, forgetting that, you know, maybe there is a bit of a complicated story and everything is not so one side or the other. It's, it's very gray. Yeah, this is one of those films that feels like two separate films, but it, it benefits from it. It doesn't, some films just don't always benefit from it, but. In this case, you see, you know, the, the soldier in the war, and then you see um, his family back home struggling, and they need him. Like his wife calls and is like, "Look, we need you back." And once he is back, he, he's basically possibly gone again for, as you said, another five to ten years. So it's it's this big struggle where it's like morally, eth- like morals and ethics. Should he go and like, should he be arrested and sent to jail? Should he? be sent home for an innocent mistake like it's a lot of big questions and it was nominated for the foreign film of last year and it's definitely worth checking out as well i think what was really nice about it was that it sort of dropped the whole oorah you know we're in the army we're gonna you know beat people up we're gonna show how great our country is sort of thing that a lot of war films even anti-war films still have it really boiled it down to these people are here to do a job and they're going to do the job and treat it like if, you know, if they were engineers, if they were lawyers, if they were, you know, mechanics, it's a job and that's what they're there to do. Exactly. It's a tastefully done film and it's nothing about it is in your face, despite the fact that it is a war film. So no pun intended. And again, it's, it's great. Uh, so let's take a, a short little break. And then when we get back. We're going to dive into our top five films. Riley, how was the first day of school? Fine, I guess. Did you guys pick up on that? Sure did. Something's wrong. Signal the husband. What did she say? Oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What is it, woman? What? I'm Joy. This is sadness. That's anger. What? This is disgust. Uh, and that's fear. Ah! We're Riley's emotions. All right. So we're back. Um, we just listed our, our 10 through 6 films. Um, Andreas, do you want to give us uh, your top five? And then uh, Mahek and I will get into our top five as well. Yes, sounds good. Um, and again, you can check out my article, which even though there's a bit of a rearranging that happened, uh, you can find out more about how I feel about these films. But let's go through my top five. My number five film is the animated mental health film Inside Out. Number four, which has been catapulted from the 11th spot on my list, is the Hungarian film Son of Saul, which I think is a tremendous claustrophobic foreign film and highly deserving of the award. Um, if you haven't seen it, because there's been limited 
availability to see it, please check it out. My number three film is the the best directing film winner and best acting and best cinematography and etc. Um, the Revenant. Number two is the big winner of last year, and we're probably going to get talking about that soon. Spotlight. And my number one film, which just narrowly edges out Spotlight, and I might change my opinion as the years go by, but for now, it's still Anomalisa, which is a schizophrenic, melodramatic, animated puppet drama with comedic moments, but a lot of self-loathing by Charlie Kaufman himself, the the master of self-hatred. So now that we've gone through all of those, let's cut back into um, both of your lists. So, Mahek, what is your number five? Okay, so my number five, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's a movie called Angry Indian Goddesses uh, that premiered at TIFF uh, this year. It had, or last year, it had its world premiere there. Um, It's a movie about seven Indian women who are brought together uh, for their mutual friend's wedding. And basically, it plays out as this film weaving their individual stories together. And it's just this really deep exploration of Indian culture, Indian women in relation to the culture, and women in general. I am of Indian heritage myself, so it really played to my own sort of experiences and my own navigation of my relationship with the culture as well. And it's a you know it just brings together these seven women and portrays them in such like a wildly colorful and completely untethered way and so unapolog- unapologetically true uh, to the challenges that women face every single day and you know in a lot of Indian films or at least the old school ones are getting better in, in them now but um, there's a very typical mold of the characters that you would find and this movie really breaks out of that and showcases them in like such a raw and true way. Uh, It does get a little melodramatic in the last like half an hour, but some of the themes that are there are really relevant. And I just, I really loved it. It's getting uh, distribution in by mongrel media across Canada this year. I don't know when it's going to be released, but it's going to be coming out. And it was also the second runner up to the people's choice award at TIFF right after room. So it's, you know, it's definitely a movie that I would recommend people go check out. Yes. The people's choice is actually how I heard about this movie. And I, I have been interested in seeing it ever since I never got around to it, but thank you, mongrel media. I will be able to soon. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's a great movie for sure. Well, thank you for shedding light on that, on that film as well. That's another one that I think a lot of people need to see because, well, it, it got, a huge popularity vote, as as we said at TIFF. So apparently, it did quite a few things right. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. Dakota, I believe you haven't seen this film, then. So your number five is probably going to be different. Yeah, I, I had not <laughs> seen that one. That certainly sounds interesting. I'll uh, I'll have to look out for it and see if I can make time to go see it in theaters or something. Uh, my number five is Inside Out. Um, I I love. Pixar, but I think in the last few years they sort of really fell off. And this was a really great return to form. Um, 
Uh, it, I don't know who hasn't seen this movie. There, I don't, there's pretty much nothing that you could say. You know, this this movie works great for children. It's entertaining. Uh, it's fun. You know, you get the all the great emotions of anger and sadness and joy, and kids can understand that because it's very rudimentary and and basic. But then you know, you can watch it from an adult perspective and sort of look back on your own uh, coming of age and growing up. And even though they used uh, a young girl as the main protagonist of the story. I don't think that's indicative of the story, the actual story it's telling. It's very universal of the feelings of moving and trying to fit in and going through changes, not just uh, on the outside, but also inside as well. And, um, and I think they handle it really delicately. And there's a lot of, I, I would not be surprised if there are some serious, uh, scientific journals that have done studies about this film and the way it handles things like anxiety, depression, um, puberty, changing, just a whole bunch of changing in general. And really, I, I think they did an absolutely fantastic job, uh, in so many different facets, um, telling, weaving such a great story. And it was just brilliantly voice acted as well, having, Amy Poehler and I'm blanking on Phyllis's name. Um, sadness, I guess. Yes, sadness <laughs> his name. But the two of them together are just like a great one-two punch, and uh, and I'm so glad that Pixar is you know hopefully back on track. Yeah, um, Inside Out was a film that I don't think I'm alone here. I got really teary-eyed in the actual theaters watching it, and I ended up seeing it a few times in theaters, out of theaters. And it's a great film. It's necessary now because of the huge talks we're having about mental health. It's great now to show that Pixar can go back on track. And it's not even just a great animated film, but it's easily one of the best films overall of the year. And it was colorful and just so imaginative. And there was a review that said it'll you'll never view your thoughts the same way again. I I tend to agree with that. I've never felt the same way again since it. Yeah, it really does sort of tug at the heartstrings and make you reevaluate everything that you ever experienced too. Absolutely. Now let's experience your number four, Mahek. And <laughs> let's see how much we got over that. I'm really liking these transitions here. <laughs> they don't I've... work. I'm going to tell you that. um for number four i've picked a movie that i literally saw in the last week but it's ranking pretty high uh ex machina um so i heard tons about this movie throughout the year and especially around award season time i think did alicia vikander got a nomination during the golden globes i think and then they won an academy award uh this year which was fantastic um as a film it's just it's a beautifully made film. I love this whole, like, I love conversations about artificial intelligence and, you know, the like, streams of consciousness and emotions and, you know, whether that's ever a possibility. And this film kind of, you know, theorizes that a little bit. But again, I'm, I'm not too fond of overly sciencey films, but I like that they focused or sort of, sort of honed in that discussion through the use of the Turing test. I think that kind of streamlined it and made it a lot more enjoyable. And then the cast is just phenomenal. I think like Alicia Vikander had a humongous year. I saw a couple of her films and I'm definitely a big fan and I'm so glad that she won an Academy Award, not for this movie, but for another one. Um, 
Domhnall Gleeson is up there, and then Oscar Isaac. I think these three are such great talents that are emerging definitely in the film industry, and they've got a lot of great work under them. But together in this movie, they all do a phenomenal job. And you can't forget the dance sequence. And, you know, you got Oscar Isaac in this deep neck sweatsuit, and he's just like, I'm going to tear up the dance floor. And he goes and does it, and it's extremely entertaining and totally worthy of all the gifts that everyone uses for it. So... (laughs) Don't forget the massive beard he, he dances with. And yes, it's the three of them make a terrific cast. They're three of the best up-and-coming actors um, that we have of this era. And yeah, you can't get any better than that. I also just want to point out that um, Ex Machina is up there with you know films like Her and Moon, like these, these mm-hmm. newer films that are coming out that are scientific, but they're poetic. They're smaller scale. And I love that new direction that sci-fi is going. It doesn't always have to be exp- explosive with aliens and 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 planets you know imploding this is nice this is a nice touch that we're getting you know under the skin as well this is this is a great direction that we have now um dakota is your number four in this direction as well or is it not even sci-fi at all (laughs) um it depends uh do you think that the catholic church is an alien invasion or you know at least just alien enough to us well there's a lot of hosts in that i i can tell you that but um, (laughs) yes do go on before we get into too much trouble um number (laughs) five number four is spotlight uh i i'm really happy this movie ended up winning best picture i didn't pick it because it seemed like the revenant had everything going for it but um it would have been my second pick for best picture the first one i'll talk about later another time um it just was so tightly woven they had a story to tell and they were going to tell it and everyone was going to be on board and they got top-notch acting from everyone even though it's it's a very very subtle movie where other than Mark Ruffalo's big freakout scene, everyone is a nice, calm note where, much like as I was saying with a war, they had a job to do. They were going to burrow their heads into books. They're going to make the phone calls. They're going to hit the pavement and knock on doors that they need to. And they're going to get the information that they need. And, you know, you sit, you're sitting at the edge of the seat, even though we all know the answer, like how this movie ended. This was worldwide news. It's not like it's gone away anytime soon. It's not even like the, the old, you know, jokes about Catholic priests were, were new since this story broke. Like this is something that everyone has sort of always known about, but no one was really doing anything about it. And so, you know, it's, it's such an important story. And then on top of that, Maybe people might have forgotten about it, especially with all the sort of good publicity the the Catholic Church has been getting in the last couple of years with the new Pope. It's really nice that this movie was sort of being able to hammer it home and be like, hey, remember all those awful shitty things that your people were doing? Well, you still haven't really fixed it up or, you know, turned these people over to the authorities or what have you. And so it was a nice reminder for everyone involved that this is a battle that's still being fought and still needs to be fought. And hopefully this movie can be put a real spotlight on it. Pun intended. I'm sure. Pun very um, much. Intended. <laughs> I, I'm very glad that it wasn't about them doing this, this article where it's like, we did it. We, we managed to do it. That wasn't the ending. Cause we all knew that's what happened. You know, the same in the same way, like zero dark 30 wasn't about 
capturing Bin Laden. It was about the efforts to get there, and was it all worth it? With Spotlight, I love the fact that the big impact is how it affected everybody. That was the big ending, not the fact that they got the article done, because we knew that they got the article done, but who was it really beneficial to? That's what makes Spotlight special, and I'm glad that we all, all three of us have basically featured it, and we will get more into it a bit later, I think. Uh, is it your number three, Matt? <laughs> yeah, let's just skip that one. Um, yes, number three, I don't have Spotlight. I have a film called The Lobster, which stars Rachel Weiss and Colin Farrell. Um, I don't think, I believe you guys haven't had a chance to see it, but it was released in the UK last year. It had a screening at TIFF, and it was one of those movies that I just like, I saw the trailer. I could not help the all the puns about or the images about of uh, Colin Farrell being transformed into a lobster, and there were some really great Photoshop images out there of it. But it was the one film at TIFF that I was like, I need to figure out how I can fit this into my screening schedule and make sure I go see it. And I lucked out, got a last-minute ticket, and it was just as good and even better than what I had anticipated. Uh, the basic premise of the movie is that it takes place in a sort of dystopian future where single people are sent to this hotel and they have 45 days to find a partner and fall in love. And if they cannot achieve that objective within the 45 day timeline, they get turned into an animal of their choice. Um, I don't really want to spoil it too much because it hasn't had a wide release in Canada yet. And I believe it's coming out at the end of the month, but it's such a, like a perfect offbeat comedy Colin and Rachel are so great in it. Um, that's really all I want to say about it. It's just like, you need to go see it. It's hilarious. Um, it's quirky. It's beautifully shot. Uh, definitely a great film to go check out. I love your list, Mac, because it's bringing up a lot of films that I haven't had a chance to see. The Lobster is one of those films I thought was going to break out of TIFF and be one of those Oscar-related films. But it wasn't, but who knows, maybe this year it'll get some sort of recognition because I've heard nothing but good things about it. It's, I guess in your case as well, it's basically hit every kind of circuit. And yeah. your description of it just sounds terrific. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those movies that like the initial audience who wanted to see it, like they got in there and can't stop talking about it. And I think it's definitely going to grow in terms of its momentum and it's going to become one of those like cult favorites after a while. Like it, it's, it's a great, hilarious movie and just so, so well done. I can't, I can't praise it enough. Well, there you go. Your, your top, your number three basically involves people turning into animals. My number three basically involves people rising from the dead. Does yours have that kind of power to <laughs> Huh? Uh, oh man, this is going to be really awkward. Uh, well, it is a comedy. Um, you know, uh, Mehek is only seen, is the only one that's seen the lobster and you and I are both very jealous about that. Um, but I believe I'm the only one who has seen what we do in the shadows. You still haven't seen that one yet. Have you Andreas? No, I haven't, but I've heard great things, not just from you, but from everybody. It's one of those films that's going to be like Shaun of the Dead. It's just going to be a cult comedy for the years to come. I cannot stop talking about it. And like every time I, I start thinking about it. I just start chuckling to myself or if I, I see a, a part of the trailer or I see a reference of it or, or see a picture or a gif about it somewhere. Like it just, it does not fail to make me laugh. It's this fantastic, uh, mockumentary, uh, about, 
four vampires living in a house together in New Zealand. It's um, co-directed by one, co-directed and starring um, one of the guys from Fly of the Concords, Jermaine Clement, uh, with another guy, Taika Waititi, who also acts in it. And they basically just take Every single Dracula film there ever was. So you got Nosferatu and, um, um, oh, what's the other one? Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, um, interview, interview with the vampire and, and a whole bunch of other ones that involve the sort of both the Dracula and the vampire mythology. And then they sort of cram as many references as possible, all while making it in this sort of reality TV, um, uh, the real life sort of thing. Is that what that MTV show is called? The real life? Am I? Yeah, uh, yeah. The real world. The real world. That's the one. The real world sort of vibe of like, what happens when we have these people living together and they're all like different kinds of vampires. So like you have the, the sexy Lothario vampire. You have <laughs> the, um, creepy bloodsucker guy who stays in his coffin all the time. That's 4,000 years old. And you have more of the, the pushover, um, uh, what's the, the na- dainty uh, sort of guy and just like uh, their experiences of going out and trying to live lives as a modern vampire, even though they're all several hundred years old. And like the one guy's talking about being the cool young guy of the group. And he's like 200 years old. <laughs> uh, and it's just like a joke after joke, gag after gag, but it tells a really good story. And, you know, you, they encounter um, uh, werewolves, but not swearwolves. Um, and just jokes about treating uh, how they're just like dogs that are not housebroken and things like that. Like everything about this movie is just like hilarious while still simultaneously being sort of creepy. Uh, and not in so much of Shaun of the Dead, the first time you see it where it's still like, ah, zombie jumping out at me. It's sort of like, ah, if this was a real horror movie, I might be scared, but I'm not going to be. Well, this is one that I've been wanting to see for a while, so thank you for bringing light uh, on the film, even though it's probably going to kill the whole cast within it. Um, But yes, again, thank you for that. And with that, we turn from night to day onto your number two, Behek. So number two, I selected Sicario, and I, you know, I, I, I don't mind those sort of I don't know how you would classify this film, I guess, like a sort of action mystery drama type of movie. I I don't mind them, but this was one that really stuck with me. And I I don't, you know, at first I was kind of like, when I, when I saw it at TIFF, I wasn't sure if that was just because like I was completely sleep deprived and I was at like a 10 30 PM screening. And, you know, I thought I was just being affected by it, but because of sleep deprivation. But when I saw it the second time, it's a movie that it stuck with me, even though I knew how it was going to play out. Um, So we've got Emily Blunt, who's, she plays this FBI agent and she gets sort of sucked into this mysterious case uh, involving cartels, um, but she doesn't really know too much about what she's doing there or how things are playing out and who's doing what. And as this film kind of unravels and we experience it through her, you know, like we get this, we get this really cool mixture of stories and these fantastic performances coming from Emily Blunt and Benicio del Toro, who like, I, I think it's such a crime that he wasn't nominated for a supporting actor role uh, at all during award season, because he gave such a subtly brilliant performance in this movie. 
And, you know, with the pairing, that work, and then you got Josh Brolin in there, and then you've got Roger Deakins' cinematography, which, like, is beautiful work, you know, providing these really dark insights into Mexican cities, and then you've got Johan Johansson's score, which is, like, it's literally, like, this deep, like, sort of pumping carving that sort of happens. It's kind of weird, but, like, it's it sticks with you, and I, I love that it stuck with me. Um, so that's why it's number two for me. It's just like I, I, I saw it, and I loved it, and I saw it again, and I loved it even more. Yes, I love the brooding of everything within the film, and Johansson's score was probably one of my top scores of the year, actually. It was just absolutely chilling. And just everything about Sicario is just bone-shattering, and if you haven't seen it, it's it's one of those films that will shake you. Even if you end up not being a big fan of it, it'll probably still stir you, shake you, toss you into a fan, just rattle you to the point where it's like, okay, okay, there's something about this film that's remarkable. So mm-hmm. Sicario's great. It really respect. is. I, and I'm with you that I think Del Toro should have been nominated. I yeah. think we're all with you. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, I, it's, it's a crime that it didn't you know, pull through the way that it should have, I think, during award season. But Easily his best performance he's given in years. Yeah, it, he did amazing work in that movie. Like, it just, I love it so much. <laughs> Even though he's an evil man in that film. Now, um, what's your number two film? Does it involve evil Benicio Del Toro's basically murdering and slaughtering people by the dozen? Not quite, but it's one that you both have talked about. It's Ex Machina. Um, I, this for almost the whole year ever since i saw it was my number one movie and it it took just till the very end to sort of dethrone it and even then i had such a hard time leaving it off at the top spot it's basically one in one a and this is one a unfortunately um this i i wouldn't be surprised if if down the line this ends up being one of my favorite movies ever uh you both have talked about it quite a bit and uh, you know, uh, I, I was listening to another film based podcast, Film Spotting, where they made a joke about Alicia Vikander winning, uh, for the Danish girl, but in reality, everyone knows that she really won for Ex Machina because that was by far her best performance of the year. And not to mention, uh, three of the best performances of the year. I'm, a, I'm one of the biggest Oscar Isaac fanboys and, he just completely upped the game as far as what he was able to do in a, in a role. Um, everything about that movie is fantastic. It's so creepy and unsettling and sterile from the set to the story to the music. And it's just, it sort of chills you to the bone while you're just eagerly waiting to find out what the next move is going to be. Because this, this movie is more of a chess game than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm with you. My top two are basically a 1A, 1B as well, Spotlight and Anomalisa. But I could see that because we've talked about Ex Machina for months and you brought up so many good things and there's a lot to bring up. It's just, it's a stunning film and it's one that will stick with you. Again, no matter how you feel about it, you might feel that it's weird or you love it. It's something that's just, it's very different. And not that you would have seen them in a safe way before, but you may never see power outages the same way again. Now, um, what is your number one, Mahek? What is the best film you saw last year, 2015, even still 2016? What is it? Let's hear it. 
The best film that I saw in 2015 is one that both of you have already talked about, uh, which is Spotlight. And I saw Spotlight at TIFF as well. If you see here, I tend to cram a lot of my movie going experiences within the span of 10 days in Toronto. Um, But Spotlight, again, was one of those movies that I heard a lot of people talking about and I made sure that I could like I was lining up in the rush line like two and a half hours before the screening and I magically was given a free ticket. So it was just meant to be. Um, I love this movie so much. I think as you guys mentioned, it did exactly what it set out to do and was to tell the story. And it's, it's like that line that Rachel McAdams says, we're going to tell the story. We're going to tell it right. And this is, a, this is a movie with, which has no frills. It's literally just laying out piece by piece what exactly this team had to do to pull these stories together and tell the truth, um, which is something that at the time people knew about, but no one was speaking, no one was speaking out. And I think, you know, along with all the reasons that you guys mentioned, I think it's such a beautiful tribute to investigative journalism. I think in an age where we're so digitally oriented and everyone's like content, 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 and like, so like focused on, you know, like in the moment stories, it was just a great moment for it to come out and say, well, hey, we still need people like these guys, this team who took that step and, you know, took the time to make sure that they provided the truth the way it deserved to be shared. Um, and I think a lot of people really appreciated it for that element as well. And then, you know, it was great to see the the original team promote the movie and endorse it so heavily. Um so I think that's, you know, kind of telling sign to how true it was to the original story that happened. But it, you know, it was just, a, it was a, in terms of its approach and how it was filmed and the cast and even down to the like really lame cockies that Rachel McAdams kept wearing. Like it was just perfectly done and very true to what the story was. And that's why it was my number one. Absolutely. And I love how they don't go above and beyond the premise. They don't try and exert it with melodrama and yelling and chairs being broken and dramatic music and down to the wire. It's literally just the premise is huge enough on its own. And it's a film that speaks so loudly with everything else being a subtle nuance to this damning premise that it's going to be it's going to go down as one of the best best picture winners in years. I would say it's definitely the, the right film that should have won. It's the kind of film that all the president's men was and it just didn't end up winning but now it has it speaks volumes despite being very quiet it it's just a pitch perfect film in my opinion and i'm glad that we all feel very strongly about it and i i guess a lot of people would agree with us except for you <clears throat> mr <laughs> mr arsenal you have a different film that uh that tops your number one and um may i emphasize the latter word of that top film just to kind of make it seem that it's not as important in the spotlight? Uh, fine, you can do that. Um, for me, my number one is The Big Short. Now, I know uh, neither of you have mentioned that. Um, <laughs> and so I'm a bit of a, the outlayer over here. But um, it was, I think, it, I think what it set out to show and teach people about the fact that, as a whole, the public is still pretty 
confuse and try to try way too hard to simplify what happened to cause the financial meltdown back in 2008. And I think this does a really good job of explaining it and also reminding people what had happened. Um, you have all these really big, loud, brash personalities and they're going for it. And after, after a while of you getting used to Steve Carell yelling at people in therapy sessions, um, you start cheering them on. And then by the end of it, you know, it takes Brad Pitt to sort of knock you back on your feet and be like, Hey, you know, if this all goes through, uh, you've just cheered on a whole bunch of cheaters and not quite crooks by the legal definition, but crooks in the sense that they're ruining people financially to win. And when they do, you don't feel really good about it. You know, you feel as terrible and sickening as uh, Steve Carell eventually does. And it's a pretty powerful moment when it sort of shifts all this raw, raw, let's go beat the system, prove that, you know, we're, we really know what's going on. We're the smartest guys in the room when, you know, everyone kind of lost. They won, but everyone lost. And the direction, the editing, the the fast-paced nature of it all, and it was just a great amalgamation of everything going really well for it, mixed with some really strong performances. I thought this was a much better role for Steve Carell than uh, Foxcatcher was, and I think he should have been nominated over Christian Bale, as good as Christian Bale was. And I, you can't forget Ryan Gosling with his uh, fantastic Jenga scene as well. <laughs> yeah, no, the cast was terrific, and I agree wholeheartedly with with the Carell sentiment. And uh, I didn't mean disrespect before, because obviously The Big Short is a terrific movie, and I included it on my long list. It's definitely inventive, and that's what you need for a film that's about, you know, the housing crisis and the bubbling and, you know, all of this financial kind of jargon. This, this is what you need. You need something electric to get people listening, because it's not just a movie that needs to be seen. It's a story that needs to be told, you know, and there were a lot of prognosticators about this from way back when, you know, you even had George Carlin basically making a joke saying, eventually the, the housing market's going to bubble and everybody's going to lose. And, and he was right. And Christian Bale's character was right. And nobody listened. Now that the damage has been done, people need to listen. And it took a great film like The Big Short to get that message across. And I can easily see why it's your favorite film of the year. Good. Yeah, it definitely had a lot of great things going for it. And, you know, besides Steve Carell's wig, I'm not personally a huge fan <laughs> of it. And a lot of the hair work done in that movie, no offense to the team behind that. But um, it was, you know, it was funny in certain moments, but it did shed a whole new layer to the entire financial crisis. And it's still because, like, you know, if you think about it, it's only been eight, nine years since that since the crisis hit and it's still such a fresh experience for so many people and people are still feeling the after effects of it. So I think it's, you know, it's a film that kind of, it still feels really raw when you watch it. And I kind of appreciated that. So that was uh, our top 10, my top 10, Mehek's top 10. You already said yours earlier. Um, make sure you, you check out the show notes where uh, we have all 10 listed and as some nice bonus content, we've got uh, honorable mentions for both myself and Mahek. Uh, Andreas, I guess your honorable mentions are just the rest of the top 20. Basically, exactly. And consider Steve Jobs and Selma also 
honorable mention. Selma I didn't include because I tried to keep it strictly to 2015 films and that kind of teetered on the edge of being a 2014 film. I didn't like Steve Jobs any less, but I just liked Room a little bit more. So everything else in my list is an honorable mention. Makes sense. I want to give uh, a very big thank you to our guest this week, Mehek Saeed. Uh, you can um, find her on her own blog, whatthemehek.com, and follow her on Twitter, whatthemehek. Um, both of those will be linked in the show notes. Um, you can follow me at DGAPA. You can also follow the show at ContraZoomPod. Uh, and as I said, go live in limbo.com. Check out the show notes. We're going to have all top tens listed and the links to Andre's previous articles. Uh, Andre's, where can we find you? You can find me if you want to talk more film subjects at Andreas Babs on Twitter. All right. Well, uh, I think that went pretty well. I think 2015 was a, a great year, and let's hope 2016 carries on that tradition. And how could it not with great films like Norm of the North, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>